Welcome to all of you uh, to this the third of our series of centennial speakers, uh, which is part of the celebration of 100 years of Catholic ministry and Catholic presence um, at Stanford. Tonight is certainly a singular honor uh, to have René Girard as speaker this evening. He's been a chaired professor in French on the Stanford faculty and a member of our community for a long time. And his international renown and stature have brought great distinction to the whole university. He's been recognized around the world, including by the Pope himself, as a philosopher and critic uh, of first importance. And the number of books I checked on uh, uh, on, on Socrates, the number of books written about him is becoming almost as long uh, as the books that have established him as one of the seminal thinkers of our time. A list of titles that include Violence in the Sacred, The Scapegoat, Things Hidden from the Foundation of the World, and I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. The resonance of those titles suggests the vital and arresting urgency of Professor Girard's concerns. I want to attempt to summarize those concerns tonight, and I refer you to the Girard Reader, if you want, in a single volume, a very good introduction to the whole range of his thinking. But I believe it's fair to say that almost all that he has written is, one way and another, a meditation on the mystery and conundrum of violence, violence tangled with and driven by the convolutions of desire. Since pain struck Abel down in jealousy at the dawn of time and the dawn of history, violence has been an ineradicable fact of our existence and agent of an engine of our destiny, personal and social, individual and familial and national. What Professor Girard has done is to draw on psychology and anthropology and history and theology and bring that whole complex of perspectives to bear on literary and biblical texts to examine the sources of human violence, its moral and religious implications and, and consequences. Tonight's lecture, which is titled Violence and Religion, Cause or Effect, addresses those central concerns and offers his latest rumination. So please join me to, right now in saluting and honoring René Girard. It's a real privilege to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very proud to be here speaking in that series, which is a, a very important one for the Catholic community on the campus. And I'm going to talk about violence and religion, which everybody does these days. You know, violence and religion was a taboo subject not so many years ago. You were not supposed to talk about it. Personally, I feel it's a continuation of Plato's taboo against uh, speaking on religion and violence. 
which is what Plato was worried about. But uh, today it arouses a great deal of uh, justified interest and curiosity. And I think it's a difficult question if we simply ask, you know, as most people do, is this or that religion violent or is it peaceful? We disregard something that we should take into account, which is that violence comes from us, human beings. This is true we should all believe that it is true regardless of whether we believe in God or do not. In both cases we can agree on that, that violence comes from uh, human beings. The question of religious violence is first and foremost a human question, a social and anthropological question, not a religious question. So here I always speak about religion as a consequence, you know. But I talk about it in an anthropological and sociological way. And uh, ultimately I talk about it in a way which uh, favors the Bible and Christianity. I can say it so frankly, but many people are not aware of it. And I'm going to talk first about the role of violence in archaic religions, you know. And then I will shift to the biblical religion. First, which religions can be called archaic or primitive? And there is a working definition which is very easy. You can say that all religions which are dead or dying are archaic. This definition includes all the religions of the small non-literate communities the cultures, you know, which died in the last century, two centuries ago, three or four, because of Western civilization. But it also includes uh, the religions of the ancient world. And it also includes, last but not least, something we don't know anything about. But they are probably the most numerous ones, thousands of them maybe, which are really the prehistorical religions. You know, we know now that there were religions long before the painted caves in southwestern France and northern Italy, Lascaux, Chauvet, which really means 30 or 40,000 years ago. Among modern humanists, there has been a long tradition of interpreting religion as some kind of narrative in which people are supposed to believe or not to believe. In the 19th century, for instance, the French philosopher Auguste Comte divided the history, the three ages of humanity, you know. The best was the age of science, 19th century science, which was the truth. Before came philosophy, which was so, so pretty stupid, but still they were moving towards science. And the worst of all, was religion before, which was just pure nonsense, you know. And if you really look at what happened in the last 50 years with deconstruction and so forth, this attitude toward religion has been restored. Because the deconstructors will tell you that religion is a grand narrative, grand récit in French, which means only a story. You see what I mean? Religion is there to satisfy the curiosity of man about the mysteries of the universe. It's not true at all. 
we know uh, there was one thing classical anthropology had discovered is that religion was not about belief. Religion was not about story. Religions were about what you must not do, prohibition, and what you must do, rituals, you know. And there are myths, of course, but myths are very local things. They are always the story of how in a small place a religion was born. So, in a way, the postmodern theory of religion has been regressive. Evolution theorists, for instance, will tell you, people like E.O. Wilson, sociobiology, who are hated by humanists, but in a way they're a little better, because they say religions cannot be the useless thing anthropology has made out of it. If it were, it would have disappeared long ago. It inevitably has a vital function. You cannot have a fashion which goes on for a hundred thousand years. You see what I mean? There, there must be a real purpose to uh, religion, you know. So, what is the function of archaic religion? People have given up in a way on that. There is nothing poetic and playful about foundational myth. They usually begin with a community in a big crisis, in a crisis which affects everything, like the plague in the Oedipus myth. My only, I mean, the, my only, not my only example, of course, but the example, I don't have time to tell you stories, myths, you know. Ultimately, they are stories, but they are always the same type of stories. You have a big crisis at the beginning, like the plague, in the Oedipus tragedy. And many things can happen, but it's not very important. But ultimately, at the end, you have a culprit who is discovered, who is responsible for that crisis. And he's normally massacred collectively by a whole group, by the whole community, unanimously, you see. And the solution is there. And this victim, who is very bad, since he's responsible for the crisis, turns into a god at the end. And he turns into a god for obvious reasons. Because by being the bad guy who assumes responsibility for everything, for the whole crisis, in the end, he becomes the savior, the one who reconciles everybody, or rather the one against whom everybody is reconciled. In other words, if you know a little bit of anthropology, I'm going back in some ways to a theory which is probably the best known about primitive religion, which is Freud's theory. Because Freud, there is one great thing that he said, the one absolutely no one believed, because it had nothing to do with psychoanalysis. And the thing that Freud said, which is great, is that there must be lynching, there must be collective killing behind archaic religion. I believe it's true. In my view, this is an insight to which we have to go back, but it must be radically transformed. Freud himself spoiled it by two bad mistakes. He believed that there was only one lynching at the beginning of history, and that all the traces of lynching later on 
were recollections of that lynching. Even in 1913, that made no sense at all. And of course, today, in our day and age, a hundred thousand years of remembering a single lynching would be a little too much, even for Freud, probably. Freud's second mistake was to give his lynching a psychoanalytical meaning. Of course, he had to do that. In other words, he had to write another myth, the myth of the prehistorical mean father who prevented all his sons from getting to the women and was finally killed by these sons. There is absolutely no evidence, of course, anywhere. Freud believed that all rituals were commemoration of that lynching of a single father. And what is interesting there is that Freud was motivated when he talked about lynching by anthropological texts. He was an extremely, when he was not a psychoanalyst, he was an extremely powerful reader of texts. And he realized that there was too much collective violence in myth and ritual and so forth, that there had to be some kind of lynching behind. I'm not a Freudian, therefore I do not believe in the Oedipus complex, parasite and incest of Oedipus are not the tremendous breakthrough that Freud believed is extremely banal. You rarely find them together in mythology, but separately they are there a dime a dozen. Why? Because lynchers, far from being obsessed by a father, are obsessed only by just about any victim. And they will accuse any victim of anything. And of course, parasite, incest, bestiality, and things like that are all over the place in mythology. They are standard accusations. Even today, if you have a mob, you know, a mob will reinvent this sort of thing. So um, <coughs> it was there, you know. So in my opinion, mythical accusations are mostly stereotypes routinely invoked by bloodthirsty mobs for opportunistic reasons in order to justify the lynching of whomever they feel like lynching. In other words, I want to have a structure there, you know, which is a structure which shifts from total disorder, chaos, the war against, of all against all, as Hobbes would say, to, for some unknown reason, the war of all against one. And the war of all against one is very easily won because you can destroy the one. I think that myths are primarily about that. They acquire meaning later on, but ultimately this structure is meaningless. It's everywhere, and the question is why? But first, here are some of the clues, in my opinion, which suggest that mythical dramas are re-lynching and not, I'm a realist, you know, I'm a very rare bird in a world of deconstructionists and so forth, and most people cannot see me as a realist, you know, they don't realize I believe in things. I believe that behind myth there are real events, and in particular there is that collective violence. Here is the first clue. The fact that crimes supposedly committed by victims are either insignificant or stereotyped. I already said that. But then 
It second includes the physical impairment of many victims. As you all know, you've read myths. Some heroes limp, like Oedipus. Others are one-eyed, rotund, hunchback, crippled, and so forth. But not all heroes. There are heroes who are perfectly intact. It's not a requirement. It's a very common thing that heroes are crippled. Another very common feature is foreignness. Mythical heroes are very often described as visitors in the culture they don't know. And we know that in a very provincial, archaic culture, the visit of a foreigner, you know, may make everybody enthusiastic for a second, but the slightest wrong gesture by the guest may cause his destruction, his sudden destruction. And there, if there is that destruction, if it is collective, chances are that in the past, a myth would be born. Now, the main reason why I believe that these things are taking place is that myths always represent the violence of the lynchers as justified by the real guilt of the victim. Now, if you're a little bit reasonable and think about it, when you have this type of sudden collective violence, the idea that the victim is always guilty can only be the idea of whom? Of the lynchers themselves. No reasonable observer will believe that the lynchers are right. But the lynchers think they are right. And if you look at myth in general, you will find that the victim is always guilty. Therefore, I see this as a sign that the myth should be deciphered as lynching, read by whom? Interpreted by the lynchers themselves. The unrepentant lynchers, they literally do not know what they are doing. This is a word that comes from some other place. But they do not know what they are doing. They know not what they do. That comes from the gospel during the crucifixion. You see, but uh, if the lynchers are speaking, you can very well understand why they picked cripples and so forth. Rampaging mobs are always doing that. They, they pick people that are easy to spot, like predators. People say that predators pick sick animals, malformed animals, because they are easier to catch, that it becomes an evolutionary thing. But this is true of mobs as well. And this is a sign, in my view, that behind it you have the real violence of real lynchers. In my view, the crisis represented by the myth are real, and a real lynching put an end to them. Now, if you look at the Bible now, I'll say only a word about lynching in the Bible. The thing which is amazing and which confirms what I said, that in archaic worlds, collective violence is very frequent, is that in the Bible you have an unusual number of uh, lynchings. For instance, you might say that Joseph, in his story, is lynched by the mob of his brother, or quistai lynched. 
Now, you all know about the lynching of the suffering servant, but there are also all sorts of attempted lynching in the Psalms. It's one of the most curious things about the Psalms that usually you have the narrator who suddenly feels surrounded by a crowd of no-good people who are trying to kill him. And if you look at the book of Job, what it is, it is nothing but a leader of a community who suddenly is, uh, finds himself confronted by a community that hates him and that has decided more or less to lynch him and wants him to agree with it, to say he's guilty. It's a perfect Moscow trial, you know, the book of Job. But Job resists. So the question is, why so much collective violence? Let's go back to the beginning. We all know that human beings are violent. It was a cliche, you know, a long time ago, but it is true. Human beings are more violent than animals because unlike animals, they often kill one another. The most frequent explanation is aggression. You've all heard aggression, aggression, aggression. Scientists are satisfied with the word aggression. You know, it doesn't take much to make them happy. The problem, <laughs> the problem with this notion is that it aggressively divides mankind between the aggressors and the aggressed. And the speaker is always on the side of the aggressed, of course, and not on the side of the aggressors. What it doesn't take into account is the two-sided reciprocal structure of all human relations, including human conflict. If aggression is unsatisfactory as an explanation for violence in myth, what are we going to look for? If human beings are not aggressive, there is one thing they certainly are, which is competitive. They are much more competitive than animals. Because in addition to appetites and needs, we have a more problematic yearning that lacks any instinctual object which we call desire. <coughs> we literally do not know what to desire, I believe, because there is no instinct behind it. And in order to find out, we cannot find desire in ourselves, because desire is a lack. Our world tries to believe that desire is inside ourselves, but it is literally impossible. We find desire outside ourselves, not in objects, but in other people, of course. We watch the people we admire, we imitate their desires. Both models and imitators are the, inevitably end up with the same desire. They desire the same object and they become rivals. I think human aggression is primarily what I call mimetic rivalry. There is already a little bit of mimetic rivalry in animals, in uh, mammals, you know. Notably in sexual conflicts, as you know, every spring battles. But these battles remain moderate. The victor spares the vanquished, and this is how the relations that play the main role in animal life are established, relations of dominance, they are called. When desires imitate one another and become rival desires, they endlessly reinforce each other. We all know that. It's a circle. The imitator becomes the model of his model, 
and the model becomes the imitator for its imitator. This is a circle in which everybody becomes completely alive. Unlike animal rivalries, human rivalries become so intense and contagious because they tend to spread to other people. We can see it in the stock market, for instance. Human rivalries become so intense and contagious that entire communities, I think, can be affected. And these are the, these crises that we see at the beginning of myth. That must be the reason why human societies do not consist in dominant patterns. There must be a moment in the process of harmonization. I'm talking as a Darwinian here. Animals are already mimetic. The most mimetic animals are the primates who are closest to man. They make us laugh because they look funny imitating each other. But we are much more mimetic than they are. And our mimetic rivalries are such that dominance patterns are not sufficient to keep peace in human society. At some point in the harmonization process, human beings must have lost their ability to live in dominant societies. Probably when they invented vengeance. Vengeance is nothing but the imitation of previous violence, which itself is an imitation, an endless imitation, which is totally destructive. If vengeance had its way, mankind would disappear very fast. That's why one of the functions of religion is to, in archaic societies, is to tame vengeance, to moderate it, to limit it in a certain way, not to suppress it entirely. At some point, therefore, there must have been this crisis, and uh, when human beings started fighting to the finish, and then mankind could have been destroyed before it even really started, because it was self-destructing very, very fast. And uh, therefore, something must have happened to prevent this. And what happened, of course, is what I have been talking about. When the mimetic rivalry I'm talking about becomes extremely intense, all differences disappear in the community. In other words, if there was a culture before, it collapses in the circular pattern that you have there, and uh, in a way, all human beings become like billiard balls all comparable. And there is a change in the modality, I think, of the mimetic power at this point. It becomes cumulative. There is a tendency for the mimetic power to focus on fewer and fewer antagonists until finally only one is left. Until the mimetic power assembles totally on one single individual who becomes the victim I have been uh, talking about. The victim who is going to reconcile the community because you can cut off the head. This is a dream of all tyrants. You can cut off the opposition with one stroke of the sword 
you can destroy the single enemy who has become the enemy of everybody and inevitably peace has come back. But this peace is marvelous. And that is the reason the victim, after being demonized, is divinized. And the archaic sacred is always that mixture of demonization and worship. But this peace is not going to last long because human nature has not been changed by this miracle. Human nature is the same. So how are human beings going to react? They are early, very early human beings, you know. They don't know anything. They are going to feel that they have to avoid mimetic rivalry, inevitably. And they are going to do everything to separate the potential opponents, especially young men who are looking for women. That is the reason I believe archaic societies have such complicated rules of marriage. The idea of an archaic society is to have rules of marriage so complicated that there cannot be any competition between two candidates for marriage. That everybody has his wife pre-assigned by the system of the community. That's what fundamentally prohibitions are. Prohibitions are an effort to avoid violence by prohibiting. And prohibition is only half and not the main half of archaic religion. Because prohibitions don't always work. Because prohibitions are transgressed. Therefore, beyond prohibition, there is another means to try to save a community from this horrible type of crisis that I haven't insisted enough on the fact that it must destroy many people during. So when a community sees that the prohibitions are transgressed and so forth, they have to find something, some other means. And let's think about these people, the process of humanization. They are only beginning to be human beings. What are they going to think about? They are going to think about this earlier case when a victim was killed, a single victim, and peace was reestablished. And they are going to try to do the same thing. They are going to pick victims outside and inside the community and so forth, and they are going to kill them. And we call this ritual sacrifice. When there were still sacrifices and people were asked about the meaning of sacrifice, they, would ha they, they used to say two things. They do this to honor the God who has revealed himself to us. And we do this to keep the peace within the community. No one took that seriously. In my view, it has to be taken completely seriously. Because ritual, I think, is the first human invention the first human initiative, we're going to redo that killing which united everybody and it will save the community once again. And one of the clues to the truth of that view that uh, ritual sacrifice is really the imitation of a previous killing 
is that the most ancient sacrifices that we know are usually collective. I wash at the victim. And another thing which is fascinating, which anthropologists have never understood, is why so many rituals begins with literally organized disorganization, organized disorder. They call it mock crisis, simulated crisis. What does it mean? It means that these communities are aware that the first solution, the first miracle occurred at the height of a crisis of disintegration. And they redo even the crisis in order to be sure to succeed. In other words, in order to restore the peace, we must have the disorder first. This is ritual reasoning, which is very powerful, very different from ours. In Africa, there is no, in most uh, ancient communities, there was no real sacrifice which didn't begin with that mock crisis where all the subgroups were fighting together. No one understood what it meant. So, of course, you know, the progressive people say it's a relaxation of tension, they are fighting the rules and so on. Not at all. They want the rules back. But in order to have the rule back, you have to have enough disorder to get people to want the rules and to get to the means of it, you know. Ritual thinking is extremely powerful, but very different, of course, from ours. So, ritual sacrifice is very literally an effort to get peace in order to get uh, victims, in order to get the, uh, to kill victims, in order to get the peace back. And in a way, what it does is what Aristotle said. The Greek word for the fundamental religious effect in an archaic society is the word catharsis. He uses it for tragedy, you know, but it's a sacrificial word. Catharsis means purification, purgation, cleansing. Cleansing of what? Of violence. You kill a victim and the violence of the community is gone. It goes into the victim. It may even be a scapegoat ritual in which you expel, you know, the victim completely together with the violence. And there is a physical image there, but behind the image there is the reality of human violence. And if you look at really ancient sacrifices, the violence is present. So, if I'm right, archaic religions are quite violent, but they are violent for the sake of peace. They make a clever use of a well-known property of violence, which is its tendency, when its original goal is denied, to accept substitutes. And we know that violence accepts substitutes, because if we are really introspective, if we are really frank with ourselves, will realize that there is this hierarchy of sacrificial victims, which is really there all over the world. The most important victim is a human being. Therefore, it is the victim that works best. You know, at the Battle of Salamis, the Greeks were supposed to be extremely civilized people. They were so worried about the Persian navy that they decided 
It was Themistocles, I think. Was it? Uh, to sacrifice two slaves the night before. They were against sacrifice, but they still were against human sacrifice. In principle, they didn't have human sacrifice. But we know that before the Battle of Salamis, they had won because the stakes were so high. And they were so terrified that they used the most powerful and sinister means in order to win. Because, of course, sacrifice is really meaningful and really useful to communities, but as a community gets older, of course, its significance increases, increases, and it becomes a cure for practically everything, which is not true, of course. But it is always a little bit true because it improves the morale of the community. So, archaic religion is quite violent, but for the sake of peace, they make. And that hierarchy of sacrifice, we have it in ourselves. Human being first, Animal second, physical object third. And we can retrieve us, retrieve it ourselves. If we think what happens, for instance, we are pretty low on the totem pole if we have a big boss who becomes impossible. We are not going to kick him in his pants because we are too afraid to lose our job. But when we go back home in the evening, we may kick the dog. We may break a plate. Or if it is really bad, we may get mad at our wife. And we should be aware that this is a sacrificial hierarchy. That's a sacrificial hierarchy which is there in all of us, whether we recognize it or not. Therefore, there is a powerful objectivity that anthropology has never recognized. So sacrifice is a very strange institution because it uses violence to make peace. In order to define this ambivalence, Jean-Pierre Dupuis, who teaches here, has a very good expression. He says, sacrifice contains violence. He says, you have to use the word contain in both senses of the world. It contains violence just as an army contains the enemy when they can prevent him from invading the place. But it also contains violence in the sense that it is full. Of and that violence can turn against sacrifice and makes everything, there are some Greek tragedies, some of the most mysterious, and uh, there is, uh, is it Hercules? I don't remember. But there is a tragedy in when Hercules comes back from uh, war, you know, and he's so dirty, so full of violence that the first thing to do when you come back from war well, there you can be as violent as you want because people outside the community are not real human beings. But when you get back into the community, you have to cleanse yourself of violence. And you do it with sacrifice, of course. But Hercules is so full of it that he goes crazy and kills his entire family. The medicine, it's a little bit like vaccination. If you put too much of it, you catch a reinforced version of the illness itself. It doesn't work as an antidote, but it becomes a real thing. If you look at sacrifice, if you start looking at, uh, you know, traditional medicine, you will see that it works exactly like sacrifice. All metaphors of sacrifice which are used 
reflects about sacrifice, many aspects of medicine still today work exactly like it. And vaccination, for instance, is a good example. So now I'm going to shift to the Gospels for a second, I hope. If you start looking at the Gospels, you can see that the story looks very much like a myth from a structural viewpoint. You had a crisis, which is historical this time. It's a crisis of uh, the little Jewish state, which is more and more threatened with complete destruction because of the Romans who occupy the country. And then you have a single glamour, which is the crucifixion, which is not lynching, but which has many collective aspects, and which in several of the Gospels is preceded by attempted stoning. And stoning in the Middle East is the local, most popular form of uh, lynching there. You cannot do that in places where there is too much grass. But there, usually you drown people, you see what I mean? But in the Middle East, it's stoning, and stoning is all over the place. Anti-Christian writers observed the resemblances between myth and Gospels already in the third century. You know, the great Christian writer Origen polemicized against uh, a pamphleteer named Celsus. And Celsus said, oh, but this Christian story resemble very much some of our uh, cultic uh, affairs, and we give examples and so forth. But in the modern world, of course, on the basis of these similarities, you know, uh, skepticism has grown very much. During the Middle Ages, there was no comparison between ancient religion, archaic religion, and Christianity. But in the modern world, it came back with a vengeance, of course, and in a way, the great, what should I say, the great inspiration of traditional anthropology between 1870s, Fraser, Durkheim, and so forth, all these people, and our time was really to show that the Christian religion is only one archaic cult, among others, a myth of death, and resurrection, in that it works exactly like uh, a myth. And in a way, the further proof of this is the attitude of the Christians toward these resemblances. You would believe they would have studied these resemblances, but they have avoided them. I think they have always avoided them in a kind of, um, you know, embarrassed way and even today, many people feel that I must be anti-Christian since I talk about that. That's enough. They don't go to my books to read what I'm talking about. But the very fact that I talk about anthropology and Christianity, that I talk about the Bible and Christianity in purely anthropological terms, convinces many people that I must be against, that I must be secretly or openly fighting the cause, you know, of uh, atheism or something, which is not true. 
So the biblical and the evangelical, in the Bible you have many of these stories too, I'll mention some of them. They look very much the same structurally as the mythical. From the standpoint of the events represented. But there is a difference. There is a difference that no one sees because people fear that in the study of religion, facts, we believe in facts. Therefore, facts are more important. The one who really discovered that facts were not the most important thing in the comparison between mythology and Christianity is someone you would least expect to discover that. And in a way, the one who wanted least to discover the truth. And there is great irony that he did. It's, it's Nietzsche. Nietzsche said one terribly important thing, which is that what matters greatly, he observes the similarity between the Gospels and myth. But then he said, it's very much the same thing, but it's not the same interpretation. It's the opposite interpretation. Why? It's very obvious. The Gospels tell you, instead of telling you that the victim is guilty, you see, mythical heroes are finally divinized, but the important moment is the moment before when the victim is killed, not as divine, but as guilty. Whereas, what do the Gospels tell you about Jesus? Is that he is innocent. So when you say, well, Jesus is a very special victim, he's quite uh, innocent and so forth, we have... Uh, uh, is very useless, its innocence is very different. There is no doubt. But at the same time, wherever Christianity happens to move in, you know, blood sacrifices disappear. Blood sacrifices cannot continue after Christianity is present. The question is why? Well, I think it's because the victim being rehabilitated, Christ is one victim who is rehabilitated. But if you look at the Gospels, you will see that the case applies to all other victims. And that, in a way, the Gospels and the Bible too have a dissolving effect on mythology because mythology is principally based on the idea that a single victim can take the place as culprit for an entire community in crisis. And this is the idea that disappears very completely. The Gospels are particularly exemplary in that respect because in the Gospels are the only texts in which the two contending perspectives are side by side and are constantly compared. You have the voice of the mob 
which says, as usual, the victim is guilty, the victim should be crucified, and so forth, and you have the voice of very few people faithful to Jesus, who cannot change anything about what happened, but can change something about the interpretation of the whole event, which is going to spread gradually to mythology and destroys silently mythology. The thing which is very interesting is that from the beginning of uh, wherever Judaism and Christianity appear, the word myth means lie. Modern culture, since it left the Bible and became non-Jewish, non-Christian, has fought that idea, has tried to rehabilitate myth. Tell you, myth is great poetry and so forth, or myth is exactly the same thing as any religious text. But deep down, we still use the word myth to say a lie. And usually a pretty sinister lie. I think we are right. Our instinct is right. Our instinct sees that uh, Christianity and Judaism undo this uh, uh, um, focusing on the single victim which disappeared later on. So the Gospels are especially explicit because there you have the two contending views side by side. And the disciples are very weak. They cannot change anything concrete. But they are the voice of the Gospels and it is that voice which is going to spread all over the world. Now another thing which is very important and I'm going to end with that. I've lost notion of time. We started at 7.30 in principle, so it's 8.30, I'm going to stop. But, you know, not only do... So, the Bible is exactly the same thing. You see what I mean? The Bible, the Jewish Bible does the same thing. In the case of Joseph, for instance, Joseph alone is right, is rehabilitated. If we were in the Oedipus myth, he would be guilty of parasite and incest. He would be as guilty as the brothers tell their father when they go back to the father and they have sold Joseph to the Egyptians. If you take the Psalms too, in the Psalms you see the victim who is about to be lynched and who complains very loud. But that victim is right. That victim is not guilty. If you look at Job, Job is not guilty. In the suffering servant, this is the first time a lynching is represented from the point of view of the innocent victim. An archaic community is absolutely incapable of thinking that a victim condemned by unanimity, the unanimity of everybody, could be innocent. This is impossible. This is what the Jews learned. Levinas was always quoting, you know, a Jewish saying from the Talmud, which in a way summarizes everything I'm saying now, which was, if everybody agrees in order to condemn a victim, let him go immediately. He must be innocent. 
it's the same distrust that we have for these 98% majorities that dictators get, which cannot happen in a democratic system. You see what I mean? So there you see, in a way that uh, archaic religion is super totalitarian in the sense that it, these are worlds that always function unanimously. But the Gospels are not content to do that only. They always tell you in liturgical terms, in a way, what the whole thing is about. And for instance, the definition of culture that I gave you, which is still in a way, the relationship between the Gospels and archaic religion is very complex. Because if archaic religion provides us with recipes against violence, sacrifices, and a whole bunch of things that go with sacrifice, like war. We think that war was invented for conquering territory and so forth. It's not true at all. The earliest war wars were wars in order to get human victims for sacrifice like the Aztec War. The notion of conquest is very recent, a very recent one. It's tied up to the idea of development and so forth. War is a sacrificial invention. Many aspects of culture are sacrificial inventions. But the Gospels will always tell you what they are doing. For instance, they tell, instead of saying that Jesus is a scapegoat, because I often use the word scapegoat for myth, they tell you the Lamb of God. And then I will end with one formula of the Gospel which is fascinating because Jesus asks his audience, it's not too long before the crucifixion, he asks them, please explain that thing to me. It comes from a song. I don't remember which one. And it is as follows. The stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone. We all know it. But do you know many theological interpretations of that sentence? I don't know of any. You know? I see a lot of Greek philosophy and theology, but I don't see sentences like that uh, often explained. The stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone. What can it mean? If we take it architecturally, it means absolutely nothing. It means that a stone, simply because it's been rejected by all the people who are building the monument, becomes the most important, the one that holds the vault together, you know, the cupola. Therefore, if you withdraw that stone, the whole building falls. And that text tells you that this stone, simply because it has been rejected by the builders, has become the most important one of the building. What can it mean? Well, it means everything I've been saying about culture being built on the victim, who becomes the God. But when you formulate this, when you understand this sentence, of course, you're, you're no longer in the same type of culture where these things happen spontaneously and you don't understand them. And the shift from archaic religion to the Bible and Christianity is the one of that understanding 
which creates a world in which you're no longer a prisoner of these unanimities and so forth, where everything is possible, where suddenly something can happen which is totally new. And um, I could quote many other sentences like this because there are many allusions in the gospel, this sort of thing, but I will stop now because uh, the time has come for me to shut up. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Do we have a question for you yet? Yes. Can you take some questions? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Yes. Do you have a reference of mob or community violence in the modern day? Do you trace the medicine violence? Yeah. yeah, but yes, of course. But uh, our societies are, can be very unstable. But they are not unstable to the point of archaic communities, and we cannot produce myths. One could give examples of modern mobs which uh, come very close to creating myths, you know. And uh, great writers love that. And uh, it's very important if uh, you find about one. But uh, it will not create a new religion, at least not so far. Even though we are doing our best to forget our heritage, we haven't forgotten it to the point where such a thing could happen. Well, I was, I just flashed on our president, George Bush, <laughs> and think he might be, when he went after Saddam, who's a major bad guy. And it seems to me there's a big example of what you were talking about, an archaic religion. Yes, but there is no unanimity. You are the living proof of the fact that there is no unanimity. No, but he, he thinks that way. He That's thinks true. Yeah, sure. That's right. But at the same time, the institutions of uh, the American democracy are still pretty strong, as far as we know. And there are going to be elections next November and so forth. And uh, of course, all the time, all the time in a democracy, things happen which reveal to you the possibility that we might suddenly live in a world where a myth would be possible. I think that up to a point, Nazi Germany or communist Russia were worlds in which uh, aspects of mythology were constantly being revived. You see, so therefore, we always live in a dangerous world. And the triumphs and the weaknesses of Western civilization go hand in hand. And uh, do not, we have no guarantee that uh, the enormous advantages we enjoy, because we no longer believe in myths normally, or we have opinions that are pretty mad at times, but they are not myths in the sense that they do not rule an entire world. There is division here and divi division there and so forth. So I think you're right 
one has to be extremely vigilant and we probably live in a time of uh, intellectual and spiritual regression in certain respects, advancing others, which uh, make our world very dangerous, I would say. But not to the point where we are likely to go back into an archaic religion. That would be my opinion. John. I think both questions get at this, this point that, well, while there has been a kind of um, dissolution of, of, of myth by Christianity on, on your thesis, human nature remains the same. Mimetic desire is yeah. still there. And so this DC ambivalent, even sinister mechanism is no longer available in non archaic or modern society. And yet the propensity for violence is, is still there. So it can't merely be that you no longer believe, on your account, belief isn't a big thing, but there are other institutions that you have actually spoken about, like the legal system, courts. Sure. When sacrifice disappears, the legal system can be established. The legal system has deep connections with sacrifice, you see, but uh, at the same time it's entirely different. Sacrifice, you kill a victim, you're not interested in the victim, only for the pacifying effect. The judicial system begins when you are interested in the guilt of innocence of that victim for real factual reasons. Now, I think that there are parts of Leviticus, which are very ancient, where you see the beginning of this. For instance, in Leviticus, there is a, one article which talks about how to stone people sentenced to death. You see there that capital punishment comes from the original lynching. It's still a stoning. But Leviticus adds something very special. It says that there must be two witnesses that for an adulterous woman, for instance, an adulterous woman should be stoned. But how are you going, and to, should be stoned by the entire community. But how are you going to mitigate the madness, you know, of collective mimesis? You decide that you need two witnesses and that these two witnesses will cast the first stone. It's not an absolute guarantee that no mistake will be made. And we have great stories of the Bible, especially, you know, in the Apocrypha, the story of Susanna and the elder, which is so beautiful, and so forth. But the provision for capital punishment is no longer, remains fairly close to uh, pure lynching, you know. But at the same time, there is an idea, two witnesses. They become responsible because they cast the first stone. Why is the first stone very important? Because people are mimetic, and the first stone is the most difficult to cast. Why? Because you have no model. The second stone is easier. The third is even easier than the other one. It's a deluge. You see what I mean? And there you see that uh, the, the, the awareness of uh, imitation in human relations is incredibly present. So these texts are very powerful intellectually, spiritually, and even from a literary viewpoint, because we don't have that same awareness. 
we are highly mimetic, but at the same time we live in a world which is so well organized and so forth that we are not exposed to such sweeping motions of mimetic. But there is no doubt there that you see the beginning in that provision of Leviticus, the beginning of a judicial system which is rooted in original lynching. You know. The fact that uh, the killing of that first victim is the beginning of the society is very clear in the case of Cain. Because if you look at Cain, we are told two things about Cain. That he is uh, the murderer of his brother, and that he is the founder of the first community. Does the Bible tell you how the community was founded? It tells you only about the murder. That's enough. And it's really a collective murder in the sense that Cain, even in the Bible, the Bible tells you, now that I have killed my brother, Cain said, everybody will kill me. In other words, we are in chaos. I'm a murderer. What are we going to do? You see what I mean? Therefore, we have to create punishment and so forth. This is the creation of the culture. In my view. But it is extremely such a flash of lightning, you know. Yes? And is there, uh, are there ways in which structural issues in, in a large society can result in escapes from your model, but in instances where you have structural injustice manifest by abuse of, of, of say, judicial system or war made? No doubt. No doubt. Sure. Sure, sure. Now, a large society, I do not presume to account for what's going on in a large society. I'm interested in foundations, you know, and especially in archaic religion and its relationship with Christianity. But I do not presume to explain the workings of our society. But even though mimetic aspects are always more present than we realize. And if you start watching people or watching great writers, what is the difference between a great writer and a mediocre writer? Is that the mediocre writer is not aware of that constant exchange between people which is mimetic. I hold my hand to you, you hold your hand to me, and we shake hands. But if I hold my hand to you and you refuse to shake mine, I will refuse too. Therefore, we'll still be in reciprocity and still be imitating each other. In other words, conflict is just as mimetic as peaceful relations, but in a different way. So there are many things to observe there that are not usually observed. But what I would like to do is to, I say psychology is the wrong point of view. Psychology is the point of view of the doctor looking at the single patient in a situation which is not normal. Instead of psychology, we should have a science of human relations, which would start with two, you know. Marilyn? I wonder if you would simply comment on one of the most 
most moving sentences in the gospel, let the one who is without guilt cast the first stone. Yeah. Well, it's a very important thing because there you had a stoning situation. The woman has been caught in adultery and everybody has seen her and people go to Jesus and say, what would you do, Master? You know? And, of course, the situation in Judea at the time was a complex one because there were people who were for the lapidation of uh, adulterous women and there were people who were against. And uh, these people were trying to pigeonhole, you know, to put Jesus into a slot by forcing him to take sides. But he said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And what happens after that is that one by one they leave the scene and do not cast the first stone. And cast the first stone is very important that the first stone is the most difficult to cast. But when the first one leaves, it becomes very easy for, more easy for the others to leave. What Jesus is doing is doing a mimetic movement in the opposite direction from the violent one. You see, and uh, it's a very important scene, of course, which is a very curious one. We don't know where it comes from, because uh, it's in the Gospel of John, but it's not in the best manuscripts of John. Nevertheless, its canonicity has never been argued, discussed by anyone. But usually it's put in chapter 6 or 8 of John, I think, in a place where it doesn't really fit, you know, because the early, it doesn't really fit, so it shouldn't be there. It should be in the Gospels, but many people observe that it's closer to the parables of Luke than to the Gospel of John. So there are people who would actually shift it to the Gospel of, uh, of Luke. And I think they are right, because uh, in John, there are very few stories that could be compared to that one. Where in Luke, there are quite a few. You know, the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son and so forth, which are really stories. And this one, indeed, is very powerful, and I don't think this one has any counterpart anywhere, you know. How to get that unanimity through, but through a good mimesis instead of being the bad mimesis of uh, violence. But it is very powerful precisely because the only way you can undo the mimesis of violence is through the mimesis of love and charity and so forth, which goes the other way. Yes? Uh, you just mentioned the mimesis of the victim as important for Christianity. I was wondering if there was an equivalent of that for Islam. Well, you know, I, I, I cannot talk about Islam because uh, I don't know enough. You know, I read the Koran once and so forth, and uh, I cannot answer your question. 
But there is nothing about the adulterous woman since the stoning of adulterous women is still on. <laughs> That's one thing you can say. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear you reflect a little more on why the sacrifice of the innocent victim, Jesus Christ, makes such a reversal, such well, a reversal in the pattern. Because the innocence of all victims is revealed at the same time. In other words, Jesus does not uh, 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 destroy the system for himself alone, of mm. course, but he makes uh, archaic religion outmoded. Mm. After Jesus, you cannot believe that that uh, mimetic rush against the victim could be the truth. Uh, I think your question is very good in the sense that you cannot pinpoint, you know, <clears throat> any specific passage. But if you look at the descriptions of the Gospels, for instance, of the crucifixion, they emphasize only one thing, which is the mimetic aspect. Because, for instance, it is very wrong to interpret Peter's denial in a psychological way. I hate psychology in a way. Because to interpret it in a psychological way really means if I had been in Peter's place, I'm strong psychologically, I'm pretty healthy, have been psychoanalyzed, and I would not betray my master. This is complete madness. Peter is there because he's representative of the apostles, because he's the best. In other words, even the best cannot fail. When does Peter deny his master? when he gets into a crowd which is hostile to Jesus, of course. He has to imitate that crowd. We are all like that. That's fashion. You know? We are all for fashion. That's nothing more, nothing less. And uh, uh, therefore, Peter is a man who cannot resist ministry. But look at Pilate. Pilate is miles away from Peter. But Pilate would like to save Jesus. Is it because he's a Roman, you know, and not a Jew, and because the Gospels are anti-Jewish? This is ridiculous. Because in the death of John the Baptist, you have Herod, who is a Jew, and who is exactly in the same situation as Pilate. His guests want to kill John the Baptist. They are all together because they've seen a mimetic dancing of Salome. And Pilate being a politician, and Herod being a politician, you have to pretend to lead the crowd, but you really always follow the crowd. And therefore, you must surrender to the crowd. But the most amazing mimetic aspect of the crucifixion story is the thieves crucified with Jesus. You would believe that being crucified with Jesus, they'd be on the side of the victim. Not at all. They want to believe they are still part of the crowd and they will sit right with the crowd against Jesus. Why? In order to feel they are still normal people, they are not on a cross. The more crucified you are, the more you need a, one more crucified than you. You see what I mean? <laughs> this is the way human beings function. And there you understand that every detail counts because it adds to a picture which
could be monotonous, you see, but it's not monotonous and it's incredibly powerful and original. You know. But the whole picture is entirely mimetic. When people say, oh, the Gospels are more realistic than myth, they mean that they are descriptions of that time, which are so powerful and so modern, really, that uh, they sound totally different from uh, mythology. But they are based on imitation. Everybody imitates. And therefore, everybody turns against Jesus, but no one is interested in him. You know. That's why the victim is so much alone. This loneliness of the single victim being seen from the point of view of the victim is at its maximum in Mark. You know. In Mark, Jesus is totally abandoned by the disciples until the end, because the disciples do not understand anything until the resurrection, which enlightens them. And in Mark, Jesus believes that God must have joined the crowd. And that's the meaning of uh, why have you abandoned me? You see, so there, Mark is absolutely relentless in uh, emphasizing this aspect. Mm -hmm. But it's present in all Gospels. I want to thank René Girard for a wonderful evening. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.